are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. So my friends, my family, would you hear the words of Jesus that encourages us, that equips us, that convicts us, and changes us from the inside out. Jesus says to those on the hillside, and by extension us, starting in verse 15 of chapter 7, beware, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Let me tell you a story. One morning when I was younger, uh, I was making pancakes with my family. How many of y'all made pancakes before? I'm not talking about the ones that are out of the box. I'm talking from scratch pancakes. Now, if you know anything about making pancakes, typically they call for about maybe a teaspoon or so of salt. And depending on the size of your, of your, uh, your portions, you'll have maybe a cup or maybe even two of sugar. And so my family and I started mixing things together. And when we got done mixing, we buttered up the cast iron skillets. We threw those jacks that we flipped and flapped on that skillet, served them up to our other family members only to hear, ugh, why do these taste so salty? Have you ever done that before? Where you thought the sugar was sugar, but it was actually salt? See, what, what, I, what happened was I put a couple cups of salt into the batter and not sugar. The change of one ingredient can either make your, your receivers of the, that meal really happy or could turn their taste buds on edge. Now, why did I mess up? It's because salt and sugar look exactly the same. What Jesus is saying here is to be on guard. 
Be on guard because there's going to be false teachers who look like they are Christians. But inwardly, they're drastically different. They can set whole communities on edge. You'll meet those who claim that can guide you on an easy road. But the road that they lead you down, like we saw last week, is only a road to destruction. These teachers, they'll make it seem like what they're offering is sweet to the taste. But will only leave you with disgust in your mouth and death at the end of your road. So Jesus We said last week, he started out his sermon with tenderness, and here he's closing with gracious toughness. He's warning us. He wants to warn us not to listen to these false prophets, but instead follow the true prophet. Don't listen to the false prophets, but instead follow the true and better prophet. And he's going to tell us this three different ways. So if you've got your notes with you, we have three points for you here today. The first point is what to watch out for. Second is how to spot them. And finally, third, what will happen to them? So who to watch out for, how to spot them, and finally, what will happen to them? What will happen to these false teachers that he warns us not to follow, but instead follow the true and better prophet? You all ready to dive in? Who to watch out for, first point. Look with me in verse 15 of chapter 7. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Here Jesus is acknowledging that there are false prophets, which is if you flip to the opposite side, it also means that he's acknowledging there are true prophets. So we have to answer the question, what is a prophet? A prophet, you'll see this definition up here, is someone who declares the words of God. Can you say words of God? To point the way back to God. Can you say way back to God? They declare the words of God to point the way back to God. Now, prophets aren't just those who predict the future. It's true That one of the ways to identify a false prophet is to see if what they claim will happen in the future will come true. That is definitely one of the roles of a prophet in the Old Testament. However, most prophetic words in Jesus' time and in the Old Testament are an indictment on the foolishness and folly of God's people and even more an indictment on the injustices of the leaders of Israel. You see, one of the downfalls of false prophets in the Old Testament was their amoral optimism. Their amoral optimism. They failed to communicate God's judgment where God's judgment was due. They pretended there was no sin in the leadership when the leaders were full of sin. Look what Jeremiah explains about these pseudo-prophets. They have treated the brokenness Read sin, read shame, read injustice. They've treated the brokenness of my dear people superficially, claiming peace, peace. I mean, there's no judgment for you. 
They're claiming peace when there is no peace. They masqueraded as prophets because what they did sounded good to get the clicks and the likes, not just of the people around them, but of the people in power around them. And Jesus, isn't it interesting that immediately following the wide and easy way and the narrow and difficult way, he's now talking about prophets who are supposed to point the way. They're skilled. These false prophets are skilled at turning the map of salvation on its head. They're skilled at saying, it's based on what you do that gets you into the kingdom. When Jesus says, no, it's based on my grace and my life that gets you into the kingdom. And what's even more peculiar, Jesus says, is they look like sheep. (laughs) They look like they're part of God's flock. But in actuality, they're ravenous wolves who want to destroy you. They want to destroy you. They look like the white flakes of sweetness that I put into the pancake. But in all actuality, it's destroyed my family's taste buds. What is Jesus saying? False teachers, they do not announce who they are. Do you see that? They look like they're sheep. They claim to be who you are. They say, we aren't one of them, we're one of you. Not only do they know how to look good, they know how to sound good. Did you notice later on in this verse, they know how to say the word Yahweh, Lord, Lord. They even know how to be Christ-centered in your name, in your name, in your name, three separate times. They know how to look good and have the right words. But the Apostle Paul and Jesus is not impressed. The Apostle Paul warns the church in Ephesus. He says, I know that after my departure, this is in Acts 20, Savage wolves, same language here, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I've never stopped warning each one of you with tears. See, what the Apostle Paul knows and what Jesus knows is false teachers and false prophets that masquerade as Christians. They want to destroy you. And so he says, watch out for them. Be on guard. But not just watch out for them. Second point, he says, how to spot them. How do we find out who these false teachers are? And Jesus says, starting in verse 16 of chapter 7, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now let's go back to my my story from when I was a child making pancakes. What would have happened if I would have actually taste tested those white flakes 
I would have recognized what it was by what they tasted like. And Jesus is saying, do the same with teachers around you. Test them. Know them. You will recognize who they are by what they do. Test them by their fruits. You see, a wolf, a wolf can hide in sheep's clothing. A tree cannot. Thistles, thorn bushes, can they produce fruit? No. Only healthy trees can produce fruit. Only fig trees can produce figs. Only vines, grape vines can produce grapes, Jesus says. But it's, notice, he's not just saying, you got to get the tree right. He's also talking about the condition of the tree, is he not? They can be the right type of tree, but are they diseased or are they healthy? Because only a healthy tree can produce good fruit. This is how you spot false teachers, by their fruit. He says it twice, verse 16, verse 20. Now what Jesus is saying here is not a works-based salvation. He's not saying the fruit provides life to the tree, hear me. He's saying the fruit proves that there is life in the tree. How do you know a tree is healthy? How do you know a teacher bears good fruit? It's based on their roots. Are they rooted in the gospel of grace? Because if they're rooted in the gospel of grace, they will produce gospel fruits. It's those who confessed that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved. And we know this through Scripture alone, not through man's words, but through God's words. But the Reformation, which we celebrate and commemorate today, Martin Luther says, this salvation that is by faith alone it's a faith that saves that does not remain alone. Because true faith produces fruit. It's the whole point of the epistle of James. Faith without works is dead faith. It's not alive. You see, Jesus lets you into the kingdom based on who he is and what he's done. But he's also the vine. And we are the branches. We can do nothing apart from him. And he produces the work in us, the fruit in us, that we cannot produce ourselves. See, what do you know about fruit? Anybody have any fruit trees in the yards? Anybody have grapevines? Nobody. All right. This will be interesting. Not many of you are familiar with agrarian illustrations. It's going to be hard to read a lot of the Gospels because that's what Jesus uses. A lot of agrarian illustrations. My neighbor, Giovanni, he has one of the most beautiful gardens in all of Pittsburgh. It's immaculate. Cherry trees, apple trees, fruit trees, fig trees. Now, if you were to talk to Giovanni, he would tell you it takes time to produce fruit. Seasons after seasons, colder months, 
warmer months, seasons of rain, seasons of sun. Fruit doesn't always appear immediately. So this is what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying to pay attention to the speck that is in a teacher's eye while ignoring the log in your own eye. What Jesus is saying here by using the imagery of fruit is not to quickly condemn, but to be graciously curious with the teachers around you. He is not even saying to go on a sin hunt. This is not offensive language if you like sports ball in here. He's not saying go on the offense. He's saying be on guard. This is a defensive posture. And he's saying true teachers must not only have sound doctrine. Are words important? Yes. But they must have sound devotion as well. They must not just declare the words of Jesus. They must live in the ways of Jesus. And the ways of Jesus is the fruit. The way the Apostle Paul says in another letter that he wrote to a bunch of religious folks who forgot about the gospel, he says, Galatians 5, but the fruit, this same language here, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus is saying, test the fruit. Pay attention. Be on guard. If there's good gospel fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, that means there's good gospel roots. But what do you do if you see both good and bad fruit in a teacher's life? What do you do when you see Righteousness in one area and unrighteousness in another. What do you do? You ask the question, is there a desire for change? Is there a desire for repentance? Because if you talk to my neighbor Giovanni again of what it means to have a healthy tree, you know what you're going to find on that healthy tree? Dead limbs. And what does a good gardener do? Prunes it. Prunes it. What does Jesus, the good and faithful gardener, do to his church? He prunes the church of false teachers. He prunes the church of false Christians. He even prunes us. He even prunes us of unrighteous ways because he's good. And when I talk to Giovanni about pruning the dead branches, doesn't that hurt the tree, Giovanni? He's like, no, it actually brings life to the tree. It sprouts new branches of life. And this is what the gospel of John the Baptist declares. The good news of John the Baptist is that we are to bear fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so you have to ask the question, it's not either or. Good fruit looks like good leaders confessing when they've messed up. Good fruit looks like leaders repenting of what they've done wrong. You know what bad fruit looks like? No repentance. 
no confession. Always self-righteous, always selfish ambition, always a pride where the Apostle Paul says it leads to envy, strife, divisions, and anger towards one another. Because they always have to be right and everyone else is always wrong. And what's at the root of this fruit? It's the self. They're only out for self-promotion, self-preferences, and a performance that focuses on them. They're only interested about their brand, their organization, their comforts, and their works. It's all about them and not about him. This is how we spot them. But what will happen to them? Third point. Jesus says they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You know what hell is? Hell is an eternity centered on you. Loneliness apart from God. It's what these religious leaders had then. It's what they will get later. They have their reward. This is what will happen to them. He continues in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is saying that you can get all of the right words, Lord, Lord, and you can completely miss the Lord in the process. Completely miss the will of God. Completely miss that he requires a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew 5.20. Completely miss that he requires you to be perfect and whole as your heavenly Father is perfect and whole, Matthew 5, verses 48. Completely miss that we are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. They're missing it. Because on the final day, there's going to be a large number of teachers who come up to me with all of the right words, all of the right language. They'll say to me, they'll get my name right. They'll declare that my name is, is right, that they did this in my name and that in my name, healed in my name, prophesied in my name. They'll declare to me a name. And I'll declare to them, he says, I never knew them because they were by name only Christians that never knew me and I never knew them. What is Jesus talking about here? See, on the one hand, these things that they're declaring is nothing that Jesus really cares about. Mighty works? I mean, has he ever said, blessed is the one who does mighty works? No, he says, blessed are the meek, the powerless. When has he ever said, I want eloquent prophecy from you? No, he says, blessed is the one who has poverty in spirit. But even if they're able to get these commands 
right, even though they could be achieved outwardly, these false teachers, they only do these things because they want the spotlight to be on them. You can say all the right words, have all the good works, but your words and works are really just about you. Why do you do what you do? What do you want when you want to obey God? See, Jesus is trying to warn us about these teachers, not just so that you can avoid them, but so that you don't become like them. Did you see what all these works are centered on? Them. We did this, Jesus. They are the subject of the sentence. Their mighty works, not Jesus's. Their casting out of demons, not Jesus cleansing them from their sin. Their prophetic skills, not the one all the prophets point to, which is Jesus. See, our hope here, my hope, the elders' hope, is that you would not be all that impressed with me. That you not be impressed with my preaching, but you be impressed with the one who I preach about. You'd be more impressed with the Jesus that I tell you about than you are with me. But these fools, Jesus says. He even warned us earlier. Remember what he warned us about? I don't want you praying like them. Why? Because that is the broad and easy road. Those leaders only pray in public to get the clicks, the likes, and the follows. You following me? He tells us not to give to the needy like them. Why? Because it will lead to your destruction. They only give to the needy so that they'll be seen by others for how good they think they are. See, Jesus warned us about these false prophets and teachers because they're only following what they love. And you know who they love the most? Themselves. They claim to love God, but they only love themselves. And if you follow them, they'll tell you to worship their words and their ways. And you'll turn into the image of them rather than the image of God in whom you were created. You'll turn into self-righteous, judgmental, legalistic hypocrites. All performance and play acting on the outside when you know there's some deep problems on the inside. And isn't that how we read the Bible sometimes? Isn't that how some teach us how to read the Bible? That it's about us? What does this have to say about me and my dreams and my visions and my comforts and my life when the whole Bible is not about you? It's about Jesus. It's about God's glory for your good, not your glory for your good. It's declaring that he is the center of the entire scriptures, of the entire cosmos, not me, myself, and I. Because when you make your whole life about you, you will get your reward. When you make your obedience all about you, you will get your reward. Religion says you work now and you get what you want 
now. Religion says that I will do good in front of others so that others will think that I'm good. But what happens when others find out you're not so good? (laughs) What happens when others find out what you're scared for them to find out about you? Anybody ask the question to themselves often, what if I'm found out? What if they know what I know? I'll lose my reputation, my status, my perceived power. And Jesus says, if your life is centered around what other people think about you, you have your reward right now. They know you. I don't know you. What you're working for is you, not for me. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, what is the heart of the law? That Jesus says they are lawless. The heart of the law, we just read it a few weeks ago. So whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law. Do you see that? This is the sum of the law and of the prophets. The problem with these leaders is that we're loving others so they get loved. They were doing good to others so that that good is done to them. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. They only love to make themselves known and not God. Let me ask you. Why do you love others? Is it for your benefit or for the benefit of the gospel to be known? Why do you obey God? Is it so that you look good in your cliques and circles? Or do you obey God because you know he loves you? heard this story last week, a story about Elizabeth Elliot. Anybody recognize that name, Elizabeth Elliot? She was a, the wife to a, a great missionary named Jim Elliot. Now, she would regularly tell the story about Jesus that's not in your Bibles. So, so don't go looking for it right now. It's not in your Bibles, but she'd regularly tell her, her children the story about Jesus and everybody's favorite disciple, Peter. She made up this story to teach a little bit about our heart's motivation. So one day, Jesus told all of his disciples to grab a stone and to pick it up and carry it with them wherever they went. And so Peter, being Peter, picked up the smallest little pebble and carried it with them. They walked for miles and miles. Finally, at dusk, they found a spot to build a fire. And Jesus said, get out your, your stones. You know what Jesus did? He turned their stones into bread. Peter had a small dinner that night. So the next day, they woke up, and Jesus says the same thing to them. Grab yourself a stone. And so Peter, being Peter, he goes, and he grabs this huge boulder, heaves it onto his shoulder, and walks for days with it. And finally, when they get to a destination, Jesus says, all right, throw it into the water. And and Peter's like, what? No. No dinner? No bread? 
And Elizabeth Elliot, she asked the question, who is Peter carrying the stone for? Who are these religious leaders obeying for? Who are you doing what you do for? Is it for your benefit? Or for the good of others so they might know the Christ that knows you? Jesus knows that we are tempted to fall back into the trap of making everything about us and what we do. He knows that we are tempted to love others in order to benefit us. He knows that we, like these leaders, we only want to know God to get things from God, not simply to know God to get him, because he knows us fully and completely and loves us just as we are. So what does it mean then? If Jesus says, depart from me, I do not know you, what does it mean to be known by Christ? Let me tell you, it means take the mask off. It means to stop being a hypocrite. It means no more cosmic plagiarism, trying to be God instead of being the image of God and who you were created. It means to stop masquerading and play acting like you are the good person you know you are not inside. You know what the scariest costume you'll see this Halloween weekend is? It's the costume that comes into churches every single Sunday. It's the mask that says, hi, I'm fine. Jesus says that is the scariest mask you could ever wear. Because you're declaring one thing on the outside when he knows there's far deeper problems on the inside. The biggest reason why Jesus doesn't know them because false teachers, false Christians wear a mask to make them look better than they are instead of coming out in the open and saying, this is so I am. I'm a mess. I'm broken. And why are we fearful about coming out into the open? Why are we Because we, we are so afraid of being rejected. We're so afraid of being left alone. And that's just a horizontal reality between one another. But it declares a deeper reality, a vertical reality, that we are fearful that if we actually say who we are on the inside, God will reject us. If, we actually, if God actually knew everything that goes on inside, then he'll punish us. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you can stop hiding. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is you don't have to perform anymore. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he accepts you just as you are, but promises not to leave you where you are. Brennan Manning, in his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, he says, God loves you unconditionally as you are, not as you should be, because no one is as they should be. No one is. And this is what the false teachers believe, failed to live, and failed to teach. They still believe, like many of you still believe, that you can save yourself. They still believe that God loves you based on what you do. And when you begin to believe that God loves you based on what you'll do, you know what Christianity becomes? Just like all the other religions, centered on works. 
But Jesus says, come on out. Come to me. I know you're weary. I know you're tired of pretending that you are fine. Do you know what fine means? Frustrated, irritated, not okay, and everything's wrong. He knows. He knows. And he's saying, why do you keep pretending? That is the wide road that will crush you. There's no life there. The difficult road is to say, I'm not okay. I'm not good. And even when you see me doing good, I do it for the wrong reasons. I do it so you think well of me and not well of him. He knew in advance. Jesus knew in advance that you'd be like this. That's why God sent him. Because he knew you could not fulfill the law. He he knew that you would love others for your own benefit, but Jesus comes and shows us how to love others. He doesn't love others for his own benefit, but he loves others for your benefit. He came to do what you were unable to do. Fulfill the law. And even though he knows that your faith would be marked with sin, shame, fear, and doubts, you know what he did? He still went to the cross for you. He obeyed about a tree. See, if you want to know how do I become a tree that is alive versus a tree that is dead, it's to stop acting like your first parents, Adam and Eve. See, what happened with Adam and Eve? They wanted more than what God gave them. They wanted not just be like God, that's what the Imago Dei is, they wanted to be God. And so they disobeyed about a tree. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and it led to their destruction and death. But Jesus Christ, he came and obeyed about a tree. Why? So that you and I can have life. He obeyed about a tree, a tree that if anyone is hung on is called cursed. Jesus took the curse of us, of centering our lives all around us. Why? So that we can have life. And he did did not do this for you when you figured out how to shape up and become more like. No, he died for you while you were still sinning. He died for you while you were still messed up. It wouldn't be grace if he didn't do that. He died for you knowing that you could not save yourself before you ever to do any good in your life. He says, I'm going to do good to you even though it would mean death for me. I'm going to die so that you might have life. And the way that we now have life in this tree is now dig deep roots in Christ so that we can have gospel fruit in Christ. Amen? So that our life is not centered around who we are and what we do, but it's centered around who Jesus is and what he does. And the way that we bear fruit is to confess. It's to confess. Do you know that the biggest criticism, criticism anyone could ever make about you pales into comparison to the criticism that is already on the cross? 
Everything that can be known about you is already known about you, and it's nailed to the cross. It's buried in the grave so that you can walk out in freedom in Christ. This gives us the humility to say, I'm not good, but I know someone who is, and his name is Jesus. And he declares of me, good now. Not based on what I do, but based on what he's done. He says to me, well done, good and faithful service. Not because I've actually done well, but because he's done well on my behalf. You see, if you want to bear good fruit, you have to dig deep roots. And those roots are not centered on you. They're centered on Christ. Who wants to grow in love? Dig deep roots in Christ. Who wants to grow in patience? See a couple more hands. Dig deep roots in Christ. Who wants to grow in self-control? Dig deep roots in Christ. Who wants to grow? Grow in faithfulness. Dig deep roots in Christ. Who wants to grow in gentleness? Dig deep roots in Christ, and you will see gospel fruit come out as a result.